Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Nerd Explosion podcast. I am your host, John Wintrup, and as always, I am joined by the candid Clark himself, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? March Madness has been in full swing, consuming my life, but luckily, I've had a little time to watch some of the shows that have come out. A lot of shows to talk about. Dear God, we're starting to get overloaded with shows. It's too many shows. Excited to talk about it. Let's get into it. Yeah, so the first one that we watched... Um, or rather the first one that we're going to discuss is the Falcon and Winter Soldier, which we, of course, had our predictions for last week and it aired its first episode this past Friday. And it was kind of loaded. There was a lot that happened in this one. <laughs> yes, it started out with a pretty awesome action scene involving a Falcon chasing, basically chasing down uh, helicopters and trying to rescue a prisoner. And it was so good. The action was done really well. And what a banger of a way to start this show. Absolutely. Um, I really like that they brought back um, Batrock, who I, I think I mentioned last week that I already knew that they were bringing him back. But it's nice to see them bring back um, such a minor villain from Winter Soldier. Just to even just play a small role in this episode. It helps tie the universe together. Yes, and I do like in this episode how we have returning characters in the MCU, as we also see Rhodey in in Washington, D.C., when uh, Falcon decides to give up the shield, which makes sense. He didn't feel like he was truly worthy, and yes, Steve's passed away now. Obviously, that's going to create a bit of an issue, as we'll talk about later, but I really like uh, Rhodey and Sam's conversation as he talked about why he gave up the shield, and Rhodey's explaining how broken the world is, because remember, Sam was one of the ones that was was dusted away by Thanos, so he missed the last five years. Well, Rhodey lived through that, so him telling Sam about how broken the world is, is was a pretty uh, tough thing to listen to, but it was really great. And here's what's interesting. Falcon the Winter Soldier has already talked more about the blip than, than the entirety of WandaVision did. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice that. I mean, that, the V fair, that's more so because the blip is affecting the lives of Falcon way more than it affected Wanda and Vision. Wanda was more affected by Thanos coming to Earth and killing Vision than the blip itself. By the time the blip happened, Vision was already dead. So for her, it was only a matter of days. She doesn't really have any post-blip struggles compared to Falcon, who, unlike Wanda, has a whole family that had to live five years without him. This is true, but still, it, it's good to hear more perspective about how the world has been since the blip and how – you know, basically, there's a lot that's gone wrong. A lot of agreements were canceled because obviously, you know, half the people are dead. And there's a lot of conflict. And because of how much conflict there is, people are just looking for people to fix things. Right. And we see a lot of the consequences that the blip has and how much the world doesn't really care about what people are struggling with because so many people are struggling through the same thing due to the blip. And we see this most noticeably in the scene where um, Falcon and his sister go to the bank to try to get a loan to save their family's business and to keep the boat. And it falls through despite the fact that Falcon is a superhero, well-known by the public, which goes to show that no one is, no, no matter what you do, 
it doesn't matter. It doesn't hold any weight in the big scheme of things, even if you're a superhero. Yeah, when literally three point what seven billion people just reappear, obviously that's going to cause a lot of chaos, and that's going to cause a lot of strict rules are going to have to be enforced to minimize the chaos. And people don't get special privileges. It's mm-hmm. it's the way it is in a society that's trying to repair itself after let's just say a pretty traumatic event where you know three point seven billion people just dust were just dusted away. It's it, it's a tough situation to deal with. And we really see that through Falcon's Life, which was great. Because the number one thing I was really hoping for with this show, I think I may have mentioned it last week, is I want to see more of like what were the actual consequences. Far from home, we got a little bit, but it wasn't really the full focus of it. But here we're starting to get more actual consequences. And I really like that. It makes it makes a post-endgame more satisfying. Yeah, I would agree. And we see these consequences with um, Bucky as well as he's trying to get back into society. And now without Steve, he's kind of all alone and has shut himself out from the rest of the world and is refusing help from the people that want to help him most. Yeah, we see uh, Bucky in therapy, but we also see Bucky uh, go on a bit of an impromptu date that, that, that is set up for him. And I, I mentioned this when I was talking about this with you last night, but when the scene where Bucky basically goes on this date and then abruptly leaves, it kind of reminds me of, of an episode in Avatar Last Airbender where, where Iroh uh, helps set up Zuko with the date. Mm-hmm. And Zuko is very awkward in the date and he gets very emotional and then he just abruptly leaves. But a part of him enjoyed the date but he also feels really guilty because of what he's done in the past and what he needs to do. So the fact that a MCU show ha- has inspiration from Avatar is really cool. I just, I couldn't help but notice that. I don't it's think that it's point. a direct inspiration from Avatar only because the scene itself isn't exactly the same. I mean, Bucky, sure, he got pressured into taking the date from an older man that he was helping, but the reason he leaves isn't because he's em- embarrassed specifically of what his past could mean for the relationship. It's that he's mad at himself for not confronting the old man about what he did to his son, which we see in a flashback earlier in the episode, the old man that he's hanging out with at the bar that got him the date in the first place is the father of a innocent man that Bucky killed during his time as the winter soldier because the kid was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Bucky feels guilty for this. And we saw earlier in the episode as well that his psychiatrist or therapist or whatever is forcing him or trying to get him to kind of right all of the wrong deeds that he's committed in his past. And making amends with this man is part of it. But the reason he leaves is because he wants to confront the old man, not because he's specifically embarrassed about being out with the girl. He's trying to push himself to, to truly confront his past. So the circumstances are different. I don't think it's direct inspiration as much as coincidence. I mean, there are definitely some similarities, but I, I, I do I do get you. Mean. It was still a really good scene, and I like how Bucky is still trying to deal with it. And if you think about it, in the movies that Falcon and the Winter Soldier have been in, most of their character arcs evolved around Steve. 
But yeah, now they have to the be main their character. own characters, which yeah. is really neat. Yeah, it's kind of similar to what happens in the in the comics. I mean, when Falcon was first, both when Falcon and Bucky were both introduced in the comics, they originally were playing second fiddle to Steve. So, and then eventually over time, because of their rising popularity, they got their own titles and such. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the show. And like with WandaVision, with the amount of development that Scar, Witch, and Vision got there, we're getting something somewhere with Falcon and Winter Soldier um, in this show. And that's awesome because they're layered characters. And we've seen that briefly in like Winter Soldier and Civil War with how with just like some of the subtleties of the two characters when they were interacting with Steve, but it's nice to see what their worldview and life is like on their own, separate from the rest of the Avengers. Yeah. It, it was good to see uh, Sam uh, hanging out with his family because we didn't really know anything about uh, S- Sam's like as a person, like where he came from, what's his family like. We got to learn all of that in the first ep- episode and I loved it and gave more power to his character you know made him more human and you see why he is so mentally strong because he's had to be that way for his family yeah and i think i mean they talked about the fact that um his dad was the strong man in the family until he passed and it seems like sam is trying to live up to the image that his dad had but because he was gone for five years in the blip his sister and her kids and her family had to move on without him and you can see how big great of a divide that's creating for sam he wants to help out he wants to do everything he can to help his family but he he hasn't been there for five years he's missed so much of everything that his family had to go through without him and without any other anyone else that had been gone away with the from the blip so again it creates a really good dynamic and it shows how it kind of shows how Sam's story is going to go from here on out because it seems like it's going to be him not just like accepting his past and accepting the role that Steve wanted for him as Cap, but also um, bearing the weight of all of the things that have gone on in the last five years despite him being gone for most of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's past can be really be traumatizing and moving forward. It's not easy, especially in a chaotic society. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's not as much you know resources or stuff like that. It's just lucky that because Bucky is in the state that he's in, he's able to, to get the help. So Black Smashers. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Zemo was the one leading them. It would make perfect sense because Zemo um, is very anti-nationalist, as we saw in Civil War. It's one of the reasons why he hated the Avengers so much. Yes, and the scene where like they just appear and masks are being hung out, it was very well coordinated, and it just seems like something that Zemo will coordinate because we all know how intelligent Zemo is, and that was just a very swift attack. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we, and, and I appreciate them focusing specifically on Torres for the scene. Um, for those that don't know, Torres um, is one of the new characters in the show, and in the comics, he was the Falcon when Sam became Captain America. So it makes perfect sense for him to show up here and him getting so much screen time. We get to see his, the chemistry that he has with Sam and fully understand his character and to have a full scene like this. That's so chaotic focusing on just him and his reaction to it is really neat because it gives us a really good idea on what his personality and character is outside of his interactions with Sam. 
Yes, it makes Torres a very relatable character. The, the, the terror that he faced when the Flag Smashers came out, and it made the Flag Smashers very intimidating. Considering there's such a swift attack, and we see the terror that it caused on this very strong and capable man is kind of bone-chilling in a way. And it shows that, yeah, these guys are to be taken very seriously, and I'm excited to see where they go with the Flag Smashers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the name the Flag Smashers, if I remember correctly, comes from one of Captain America's original villains um, who kind of was meant to parallel the Red Skull in that he was anti-patriotism rather than a communist or a fascist, Um, which is really neat. And again, it it meshes perfectly with where I think the show is going to go. Um, considering that at the end of this episode, we get the look at the new Captain America, who, from my knowledge, of course, is John Walker, who was the U.S. agent. And it's interesting that the two antagonizing forces for this show are on the far right and far left of the political spectrum. Yes, I really like that duality. And even though we just saw him smiling underneath the mask in the episode, it already sets up like, oh boy, this is not going to go well. And you just know that it's going to be nothing but bad. Um, it's it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be a tough aspect to deal with. And we all know that it's going to be pure chaos considering you have the far left and the far light, and then you have. Bucky and uh, Falcon in between it. it it's going to be it's going to be another chaos and I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting seeing how both of them react to the new Captain America cuz we know that they're going to interact at some point. Either they're going to work together on a mission or something else, but it's it's again it's interesting to point out that the US agent is unlike the Avengers is fully controlled by the government which has all kinds of negative impacts. I mean there's there's a reason why Steve was so against it in Civil War. So it's going to be interesting to see how Bucky and Sam react to the new Cap and their interactions with them and how they're going to show how different John Walker is from Steve. I'm sure it's going to become more and more obvious over the course of the next couple episodes once we get more time with them. Yes, because Falcon the Winter Soldier obviously know, know Steve the best and to see a new Captain America is going to be very hard for them to see. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it clashes. There's going to be a lot of great conversations and it's really going to show like how good the writing is going to be for this show. So that's my main anticipation going forward. Absolutely. I mean, as as I mentioned um, last week, I'm most excited to see Zemo show up, but I, at the rate that the show is progressing because they're really taking their time to develop the characters and keeping it grounded and not flooding everything with action. Um, I think it'll actually be a while before we see Zemo. I would be surprised if we don't see him until like episode four or five. Cause I feel it's like they're going to build to him. Like that, that's more than fine with me. Cause you know, be patient, build up to the main character. That's more than fine with me. Yeah, no, this was this was a great start to the show. I, again, it kind of it hits on everything. We got action. We got character moments. We got developing those characters. Um, we have a tease for where the rest of the show is going to go. And we have very clear um, antagonists for our heroes to fight outside of 
the mental battles going on inside their head. So this was a great first episode. I'm excited to see where the rest of the show is going to go from here. Yeah, it couldn't have started much better. Yeah, speaking of speaking of great television, we have, of course, had another new episode of ReZero this week. And Sean kind of jinxed this last week because um, last week was an auto-focused episode. And, we're, and uh, we wanted to see, of course, more Amelia, but we're like, I don't know, who knows? It could be a Garfield-focused episode, right? And then that's exactly what we got. <laughs> so... But yeah, this was episode 41 of ReZero, and yeah, this almost entirely focused on Garfield. Not that we didn't get any time with Subaru or Millie at all, because we got a lot of good stuff that we'll mention in a moment. But I told you that they would make Garfield a likable character. I told you they'd do it. <laughs> Ugh, th this show is so annoying. At taking characters that you initially hate, and then you like them, and then you feel bad, and now you just want to make your head explode, because like, wait... But I used to hate them, but wait, they did this. But I feel bad. Ah, stop. I can't can't handle all these emotions. But okay, I just have to say it's not the best. Zeno Robinson absolutely killed this episode. This was probably the best uh, voice acting performance I've seen from him so far. It, it he was truly exceptional. He displayed the complicated emotions of Garfield. Good and bad and chaotic and sad and angry, all of that. Zena Robinson absolutely killed it. He's one of the best voice actors right now. He, he's great. G give him his due respect, which he has had at awards. Thank God. Yes. Um, yeah, Garfield might be one of my favorite characters in the show now after this episode. And that's primarily due to him struggling with his own emotions throughout um, this. Again, um, at the end of last episode, he, we had him confront Subaru and Amelia at the graveyard where Amelia was hiding, trying to block out everything that was going on where Subaru confronted her. But we talked about that last week. So if you want to hear our thoughts on that, you can listen to last week's podcast. But, um, and Subaru at this point knows at least the basic stuff about Garfield's past that his mother sort of abandoned them, or at least that's how Garfield wants to feel he wants to feel like they're um him and frederica's mother abandoned them and he takes the anger that he wants to dish out on his mother that he wants to wants to feel out on the world around him and this is very similar to kind of what subaru was going for before the going through before the events of episode four of this season where he kind of Instead of being angry about his past, he kind of ignored it, which is very – it's a very similar – it's a very similar thought process, although the emotions behind it are different. And because of that, Subaru kind of knows exactly what Garfield is feeling, and I really appreciate both him and um, Amelia giving Garfield so much tough love throughout this episode because <laughs> they both meant – they both know um, what – um, a horrible past can do to a person because they both experienced that firsthand. So it's it's exciting to see everything kind of come full circle again. So I love when that happens. Oh yes, I, I mean the show does. I mean when you have a bunch of you know time loops where you know if you die over and over again, you're reincarnated. So obviously there's a lot of stuff that comes full circle. But one thing that I've thought about watching this episode is 
is like the Zuko bucket comparison. It's not not exactly similar, but there are some similarities. But basically, Garfield in some ways acts like the Subaru in season one, very prideful. Uh, he basically finds a very unhealthy ways to cope with the pain of his past and the situation he's going through. And holy crap, Garfield is basically season one Subaru stubborn. Dear oh, God. absolutely. Yeah, That no, I think that's intentional. It's very much Subaru confronting kind of the image of his past self. And, I mean, it might not be literal, but figuratively, this is Subaru looking at many of his mistakes in his past, like, um, and kind of teaching himself how to deal with them. And it's another good way of showing how far both Subaru and Amelia, who also um, confronts Garfield about this as well, have grown since the first season. And I love how when Garfield was about to charge right at Subaru, Amelia stood in front of him. That was really neat. And it shows that Amelia is willing to defend Subaru as well, which let's just say we haven't seen a ton of that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's mainly because Amelia never thought that she had anyone work that anyone actually like loved or cares about her. And now that Subaru kind of dug that into her over the course of the previous episode, um, mm-hmm. it's, it, she's now way more open about her feelings and is more ready to not just defend Subaru, but herself as well. Yes, and showed how much she's grown. She has grown as much as anyone over the course of this season, which is really satisfying. And and this time I can safely say that the next episode will be about her backstory because she, she's literally about to take the trial, which... So we're literally about to get three straight backstory episodes. Are you kidding me? Yes. Um, why? Yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, like, again, speaking of the trial, um, because of... Garfield's conversation with Amelia and Subaru and the tough love that they show him, and then also the tough love that Rom shows him as well. Um, all three of them kind of convince him through his stubbornness to make him realize that he's being kind of a hypocrite and should face his own fears the same way that um, Amelia is trying to with her taking the trial. Because at, in the beginning of this episode, the first scene that we get in this episode is a flashback to when Garfield first took the trial. And when he banged his head against the pillar to give himself that, that X-shaped scar on his forehead, because that's where his mother kissed him before she left the villa, the sanctuary. And he gave himself that scar because he wanted to try to forget everything. And instead of facing his fears and going back and do and trying to redo the trial, he runs away instead. And because Subaru and Amelia make the point that neither of them ran away from their trial. Subaru stood his ground and faced it and never once ran away and and grew and finished it um, on the first time that he went in. And Amelia, while she is still struggling greatly with her past, not once actually gives up. I mean, she cries a ton and it emotionally scars her, but there's not a single time even in the timelines where Subaru wasn't with her that she fully gave up on trying to complete the trial. Yeah, and they basically call Garfield a coward. Mm-hmm. Which he is. Well, which, yeah, he definitely <laughs> Very <did>. clearly. 
Um, and this episode really just goes to show how much Subaru has grown. The fact that he can relate to Garfield, but he's also matured past where Garfield was, which a scene like this definitely would not have happened at all last season because, mm-hmm. you know, Subaru was still extremely immature. And also, hmm, Subaru has a little bit of a power upgrade. Yeah. Um, I mean, the confrontation with Garfield kind of just forced them to be aggressive. And they've foreshadowed this several times. That all, I mean, all of his magic powers come from the witch factor within him. The witch's grasp on his heart. Um, and they're only more powerful now that he defeated um Petal Goose, so he has the witch factor of Swath within him now as well. So, because of that, it only makes sense for him to progressively get more powerful. So, seeing one of the Witch of Envy's unseen hands come out of his chest was pretty gratifying, <laughs> to say the least. Um, it's a good example of both how much Subaru has grown as a person, how much he's matured over the last two seasons. And um, how much he's progressed physically as well. Yeah, Subaru is no longer completely defenseless. I mean, he did have the shadow magic and he had obviously friends, but now he can actually use more actual physical attacks in a stand-up fight. The Unseen Hand, obviously, very few people can see it outside of him. So for him to use that is a pretty uh, powerful weapon. Yeah, and on top of that, he also was smart enough to realize that the crystals were made to hinder or stop um, Garfield and Frederica from becoming their more animal selves, which was very cool. I really liked that tidbit as well. And Garfield's surprise that Subaru was able to figure that out was pretty great. <laughs> yes, it goes to show that not only does Subaru have this you know, new attack that allows him to be more powerful, but he still has, he still has his crazy intelligence, which Considering all he's been through, I think uh, I think his intelligence makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. and it's pretty gratifying to see Subaru go through this transformation. Yeah, I mean, Subaru's always been an out of the box thinker. I mean, that, we've seen that in almost every way that he's dealt with, basically every major threat throughout ReZero so far. So it's more of like a consistent character trait than like actual growth. I mean, the the growth is more so that he becomes more mature and. Um, acknowledges the fact that he's not alone and uses other people to help him his his ingenuity and and creativity has always been a factor throughout the show so that's nothing new (laughs) absolutely and we see garfield and rom have a very interesting conversation yeah um rom has always shown garfield tough love we've known that since their first interaction at the beginning of the season and up until now, it seemed like Garfield's relationship with Rom was very one-sided. And it definitely is like it definitely symbolizes how um Subaru felt about Amelia in season one. But I think the biggest difference is that it only really f- this episode makes it seem like the only reason it's one-sided is because of um Rom's Stockholm syndrome for Roswell, because it seems like she actually does care about Garfield um, a lot more than we originally thought. Yes, she actually was really sweet to him, and I was not really expecting that. And no, Ron doesn't really seem like the person that would actually be genuinely nice to anyone. 
Yes. And there's a reason why there's a lot of people on Twitter that are shipping them because, well, it was a very wholesome conversation. She was actually smiling and kind of like rambling. Hold on a second. Yeah, what? Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, she was being genuine about her emotions, which is something that Rem is notorious for. And Rom meant to be the opposite of Rem personality wise. Doesn't isn't really genuine about her emotions very often. She's very blunt and she tries to hide her own feelings underneath kind of a layer of straightforwardness, thinking that she's like a complete person with no issues when in reality that's not at all the case. Because as I mentioned earlier, she has Stockholm Syndrome for Roswell um, being saved by him and then, um, and then working for him so much has kind of created this fake image of love within Rom's heart. And it seems like Garfield is the only other person that she really feels anything about. Again, like you mentioned, that she smiles, like gives off a genuine smile when she sees um, how much he's improved after – how much his emotional state has changed after taking the trial. Um, and that's awesome. <laughs> yes, and it's great having Garfield on our side now. Yeah, um, it's actually – I really like his interactions with Subaru now that they're like buddy-buddy. Because they, they play off of each other very well. It's so weird that this is now the case, but yeah. I mean, Subaru needs all the friends he can get. It's the same reason why um, it's it's nice seeing how um, Otto and Rom's opinions of Subaru have changed over the course of this season as well. It's taking the lesson that Rem gave him at the end of season one to not deal with everything on the, on his own that he can actually rely on people to heart. And it's great to finally see that. It is. So who's ready for uh, who's ready for a third straight backstory sequence? Yeah. In the next episode. I'm yeah, I again I'm certain that the Amelia backstory is going to last over the course of multiple episodes because they have a lot of ground to cover. Yeah, that, that's one way to put it. Yeah, it's not as simple as Subaru's because her Amelia's past is a lot more traumatic than Subaru's is. They're going to have to dive into her history of the witches' cults, what type of people her parents were, um, how she first met Puck, and all of the discrimination and why she, like Subaru, struggles with self-love. Yeah, um... I'm a bit terrified. I'm a bit terrified to see this, honestly. Yeah. I'm terrified to feel emotions. Arthur, yeah. Um, what do you expect to get from this? Uh, basically, the witches' cult are going to be the worst people of all time, more than they already are. Her, her, her parents are going to be, or at least one of her parents are going to be great, and then something bad's going to happen. I'm going to feel really bad. It's, it's going to be the akin of that. It's going to be terrible. And I'm going to, I'm going to be sad. I'm, we're going to see Puck and we're going to be sad that Puck is now gone. It's going to be rough, man. It's going to be rough. Yeah. And I think the only thing that we haven't mentioned for this episode is that the, the teaser for what Amelia is going to face at the end was her interacting with Akedna for the first time oh. in the show. And Ooh. I can only imagine how that's going to go. <laughs> Oh, because Echidna flat out hates her. Yeah, well, it makes perfect sense. I mean, Amelia, every time that Amelia's taken the trial, she's, like, given up. She she kind of surrenders and runs away. 
So naturally, Echidna wouldn't like that. Again, it's one of the reasons why Echidna likes Subaru so much because he's driven. He doesn't. He no longer has the drive to the give up. He's always trying to face um, whatever is in this path. And Amelia is not like that, at least not when it comes to her own past. So I'm interested to see if that will change any over the next few episodes. If Echidna will kind of see what Subaru sees in Amelia. But yeah, a little, a little more lighthearted note. We also had a, a new episode of Dr. Stone this week. <sighs> yes. Dr. Stone has become like the ultimate palate cleansing show. Yeah, it's, it's definitely like mostly pure fun. I mean, it, it's not to say that there isn't any depth at all. But for the most part, it's just a really fun, enjoyable show about science-y things. Yes. Yeah, so basically in this episode, uh, Senku builds a car. Yeah. In the stone world. Yeah. Um, we begin with – we <laughs> to get to that point, we, of course, learn that now having Nikki on her side and them being able to – and her talking with them about the strategy of how they're going to be able to get more people from – um, Tsukasa's empire into the kingdom of science because the bow guy um, because his hearing is so good they know that they can't play the record more than once so their best course of action would be able to have a full scale attack on the kingdom of science attack in quotations because it's, they're not really going to fight it's more so going to be more of a passive negotiation type thing trying to convince more people to join the kingdom of science but in order to move so much of their equipment and stuff over to the kingdom of science they need something big like a car to move everything so throughout like the second half of this episode we see senku um, building a gas-powered car for the first time which is something i'm very familiar with because the protagonist of opera ramon did the same thing for his car that he used in the race there so i thought that was pretty neat to get more uh more of an understanding on how um a gas-powered car would work and be built i thought that was pretty neat yes first of all it, by the way it's a uh, yukio I was, I was i got it mixed up with a different character yukio. but okay. but yeah so we see over the second half of the episode them building this car, which I mean they already had most of the parts to do so anyways. You know, they they had wheels, they had electricity, but it was just about it was just about you know building the steam-powered engine. That was the main thing that they had to do, and they were do it. And considering you know Senku and Chrome were not Chrome again came from the civilized world, they were really giddy about having uh, a steam-powered engine. So obviously engines are one th major aspect of modern society. You know, I, I have a car, I drive it myself, and I know just how much it makes my life easier having that. So for Gen and Senku to have this is going to make their lives easier too, which is yeah. really the Absolutely. And while all this is happening, we still have Magma and Gen dealing with um, – Bo Boyo, because of his super-powered hearing, he can hear all of their movements. And of course, at the end of the last episode, Chrome tried to make a distraction so that Gen could get away, but there's both of them are still dealing with him. 
Um, and over the course of the battle, Chrome notices that he's not going for kill shots. Um, as, and but from that, he can infer that he wants them to take them hostage and question them about what's going on in the Kingdom of Science rather than kill them. Yes, and eventually he does take Chrome hostage, even though Magma is you know trying to rush head on at him. Yeah, because Chrome realizes that it will all end much faster if he just surrenders. Because they're not going to – he didn't think they were going to be able to get out of the situation no matter what. And if Chrome surrenders, at least Magma can get away. And what does he do? He literally waves in the white flag. Yeah, he surrenders. Yeah, he gets the white flag. Because everybody knows what that means. It's the universal symbol for surrender. Yes, and we see Sukasa, which, yeah, he's more EV, he's becoming more and more like Dio every time we see him. Yeah, yeah, we get Chrome meeting Sukasa for the first time. And, yeah, again, like, I, I, I don't know if we've mentioned it before, but Sukasa is very much inspired by Dio from JoJo's. He's a very powerful brute force guy that has endless charisma, which is what makes people get on his side. Very obvious. I mean, he might not necessarily be inspired by Dio, but I think he is based off of how he portrays himself physically. Um, but what's more interesting is that Sukasa has no desire to kill Chrome. I mean, he wants to get information out of him, but he doesn't want to straight murder him because he's, he's young and Sukasa feels like even if they do beat the Kingdom of Science, Chrome could still be useful in some way due to his intelligence. So I appreciate the fact that Sukasa is actually thinking about um, the potential future if the Empire of Might ends up actually working out and becoming the dominant society on Earth. He, they'll eventually need to progress and develop science. So they, they need people like Chrome. Yeah, and... It's, it leads to a very interesting scene where Chrome is basically hanging on hanging on a cliff by a, by a stick basically which 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 yoga just dangles him in front of a cliff waterfall and and he and Chrome gets dropped but Yukio shoots an arrow that 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 causes his hoodie to be pinned against another brand i'm just like this poor man is going through so much right now it's yeah and sukasa of course is nice and throws him a log to stand on so he's not just hanging by the arrow what a nice guy how considerate yeah. <laughs> what, what, what a very nice villain um, <laughs> he's like i i feel bad that we're gonna just have you like be here for like forever so here's a log so that you're slightly more comfortable <laughs> how considerate in yeah. the <laughs> but Chrome does tell Sukasa that he's part of the Kingdom of Science under Senku, and oh boy, that's exactly what Senku and everyone else was afraid of. Yeah, but I mean, I think that Chrome did think this one through, though, because, um, I mean, yeah, that could have been really bad. They didn't know if Sukasa would kill him or not, but Chrome, now having probably met Sukasa, probably figured out that Sukasa wasn't going to kill him. So that was probably a safe course of action to actually tell him that. Otherwise, Sukasa would have just figured it out on his own. I mean, he's smart. He's not an idiot. No, and and now we get to see you know Chrome being a prisoner, and you and they're using the card to, well, if you want to call it that, 
basically, you know, go full, full blown head of steam at the Sukhas Empire and hmm, hopefully get Chrome back. Very interesting here going forward. Yeah. Um, I imagine that we're going to have some serious, like, actual confrontations for the next couple episodes. I'm interested to see more of um, the members of the Kingdom of Science that haven't met Sukasa yet interact with him, because I really liked everything that um, he and Chrome said to each other in this episode. So I'd be interested to see what, what a fight between Kohaku and Sukasa would be like. That'd be fun. <laughs> uh, talk about your polar opposites. Yeah, I feel like that'd be really entertaining. <laughs> Yeah, because Gohaku's really fast and agile, while Sukas is just freaking powerful. Yeah. But no, this was a this was a really fun episode. I'm interested to see um, where the the Stone War is actually going to go, since it's likely that's actually going to start in the next episode. So that's awesome. Beautiful scenes. Yeah. The other fun show that we had this week was Hori Mia, um, and we had a we had a couple of big developments in Hori Mia this week including uh, a loss of hair <laughs> yeah so Miyamura gets a haircut and now every girl is obsessed with him yeah he was jealous of all the people that were being like oh Hori shouldn't be with such a loser such a downer guy why is she dating him so he gets a haircut and then it immediately is the opposite now everyone is thirsting over uh, Miyamura Oh, you gotta love how superficial high schoolers are. You just, you just love to see how superficial high schoolers are. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you, I am, I'm so thankful that I did not date in high school because it would have driven me crazy how superficial things would have gotten. Yeah, I, I'm, I mean, I'm lucky that the one relationship I had in high school really wasn't that superficial. Didn't really have to worry about any of that, which was nice. I'm glad because this episode really showed how superficial things can be. Oh, uh, me and Murray Hori came out of the apartment together. Oh, let's go tell everybody. Yeah. Stop. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, no, it's uh, drama passes quickly in high school, as, as anyone that's been through it knows all too well. Oh, yes. And okay. among those things, we got a girl who seemingly is mad at Miyamura for being taken. And now any normal person would assume this is because she likes Miyamura and is jealous of Hori. But it's actually the other way around. She has a mad crush on Hori and is mad at Miyamura for stealing her away from her. Oh my gosh. So. And it, 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 is, it is so cute. Basically a, a kind of a fangirl crush way. But then you find out that this girl is neighbors. With, with Miyamura, Miyamura. Of, of all things, because Miyamura was walking home and she was going the same direction, and they're just like, why are you following me? And they press the same button for the over, and you're just like, wait a second. Wait yeah. a second here. Yeah, having and, seen Rent-A-Girlfriend, this is far from my first time experiencing this in an anime. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's very hilarious, although I appreciate the fact that they don't stay antagonistic for very long. Um, when me and Mira, of course, like, you know, when they're together and he invites her in to have food with him and all of that, um, he gets to know her more and she offhandedly mentions the fact that Mira Mira reminds her of her brother who is dead, which she mentions very lightly and then tries to brush it off and say that she was just joking. 
when in reality, when Miyamura goes and talks with his um, mom about it, he learns that that's actually the case that her brother did die a year ago. Which gives a lot more context as to why she doesn't like Miyamura. Yeah, it's understandable. It's it's very tough to see. Another thing I another thing I noticed when it comes to that is that it, it takes the it takes kind of a finger cross thing and it makes it you know very different. You know, she she is simping over Hori. Let's just say how it is. She is simping over her, but at the same time, like she does have a good heart and she also is human. She's very scared. And when these three dudes confront her. Miyamura just gives them a shonen death stare where, where they're pissed off and they immediately are scared off, which I like that even though, you know, Miyamura stole the one that she has a crush on, he can, she can still rely on him and it shows uh, how caring Miyamura is, even though he's probably annoyed as hell at her, which he understandably is. Yeah, and... We, throughout this episode, we, again, like with the rest of them, see how much Hori and Miramira's relationship has changed over the course of the last few episodes. And this is shown most obviously in the way that Miramira is forced to act around her parents, especially her dad. Oh, God. So at the beginning of the episode, he spends the night, but instead of sleeping in you know, his actual girlfriend's room, uh, he, he sleeps with... Uh, Hori's father in the same room and it's a little bit awkward around it's a little bit awkward and he her her dad has a very interesting relationship with Hori because she basically kind of has this deep-rooted hatred for him in some ways emphasized by the movie that she's watching where the girl rebels against her dad it's and, a, yeah, it's a horror. I mean, it's not just that the girl rebels against her dad. It's a horror movie about a girl who strikes back against her abusive father and murders him. Yes, and he says, "Ooh, this is a scene I I really want to reenact that last scene in the movie, which yeah. was absolutely hilarious." Because uh, let's just say that the dad interrupted something that was about to happen. Because yeah, he interrupted Hori and Mia Mira kissing. Because. At the bare minimum, yes. At the bare minimum. At the bare minimum. I mean, it could have been more than that, which... But... Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this should be progressing fast. <laughs> like, like, there's always a scene where she is wiggling her legs, and I'm just like, oh. Okay, this is where we're going already. Okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with this, but... But then he interrupts, and she gets so angry at him, and it's just hilarious and amazing. That's basically how the episode ends. Oh, yeah, so no, I, yeah, no, this episode was great. It, again, Horimiya balances um, like amazing, hilarious comedy with the more dramatic like story beats really well without the the drama overtaking the comedy. This is very much a uh, Nozaki style like slice of life comedy series but it's also not afraid to deal with some deeper and darker elements like a show like fruits basket which we're going to talk about in a moment yeah it's like it's like a blend of like origari nozaki in some ways yeah because you have dramatic elements but you have comedic aspects as well and because it does really well with both it's it's also one of the best slice of life shows i've seen and that's saying a lot because i've seen a lot of really good ones at this point Agreed. Yeah, no, this is easily 
one of the best that I've seen. It's probably my favorite new slice of life since um, since Fruits Basket got rebooted back in 2019. So yes, I'm excited to see where we go with Hori and Miyamira's relationship now that they're together and with how fast they're progressing. And I assume it's not going to take that one to get to the next base. This is this is very true. I yeah, expect things to obviously heat up between the two. And I just got to say that um, I, I just got to say that Toru's side commentary about everything that's going on this episode is absolutely hilarious. He's easily my favorite character on the show. He's so relatable. I love it. I'd agree with that. Yeah, he's pretty hilarious. <laughs> but um, but yeah, speaking of, we mentioned Fruits Basket a little earlier, but yeah, speaking of Fruits Basket, um, we got the first episode, season three, the final season of Fruits Basket ever. There will be no more Fruits Basket after this season, which I'll be very sad about. But we got the first episode of the, of the season premiering on Funimation back on Friday because they're awesome and decided to give us an episode a, a few weeks earlier than expected and not only did we get it earlier but it was also dubbed which based off what's going on in the climate um when it comes to anime dubs that's a feat in of itself <laughs> yes it's it's good to have fruits basket back which you know it is my it is my second favorite anime it's always good to have it back and we saw a continuation of toru and Kuruno's conversation about Akito and you know she is basically I wouldn't say awestruck more just shocked that Akito is a woman and Kuruno explains that that role was chosen for her and how she's basically she basically was a broken child and we learn about Akito's mother as well yeah we get we learn a lot about her mother and we get very brief moments with her dad and based off of what they show it appears that she had a very loving father who died young um, when she was just a kid and an abusive mom who was, is very against the role that the Soma family has, like their curse. She's very against the idea of the curse. And I think that she takes out her anger at the structure of the Soma family on Akito because Akito is the god of the zodiac the head of the family here's the thing is Ren necessarily wrong about a curse being delusional no oh, absolutely not like Ren is not wrong at all about the issues that the curse has where she's in the wrong is the fact that she's taking out her anger at the family curse at on akito and putting all of that blame on on her that's the don't issue. Why Akito's so bitter all the time? Yeah, no, I totally get it. Well, I, I mean, I'm, not, I don't feel. I mean, like, I feel bad for Akito, but like, she's still horrible, horrible person. Oh, I yeah. at least sympathize with why she's like that. And I appreciate the fact that Kurno doesn't have Stockholm syndrome for Akito. He genuinely, he knows her past and genuinely feels bad and is very. Taru-esque in the way that he acts not just around her but the rest of the Zodiacs as well yeah Colonel is such a interesting character obviously I wrote about him extensively in my season two review of Fruits Basket but basically he does have that desire to be with Uatani but he does also feel bad for Akito and he sees Akito as his broken child more than 
you know, this awful head to feel like most other people see her as. Mm-hmm. And it goes to show that, like, you know, season three is really going to be focused on Akito and how on how broken she is. It's it's a really rough situation. Yeah. And I imagine that this season will be focused on Akito learning to let go of everything that she holds so close to her heart. Not just Kurno, but also being the wet leader of the Zodiac, um, hiding hiding her true gender um, and trying to appear more masculine. It's it's kind of all a lie that she's telling her herself because of the role that she thinks she needs to have within the family. A lie that her father likely helped embellish within her, as nice as he might have been. Yeah. <laughs> It goes to show just how messed up this whole situation is even further. And you just feel bad for everyone who's caught up in this. Obviously, Akita is horrible, but there is some sympathy there. Yeah, she's like the rest of the Zodiac. She's been traumatized by being a part of the family and being um, and the curse surrounding them. She's just as much a victim as the rest of the Somas are. So who is the ultimate perpetrator here? Is- um the original the original zodiacs that created the curse obviously yep exactly so so this is like a centuries millennium old problem mm-hmm. here that toru is almost single-handedly trying to fix yeah i mean she no has help world. from yeah she has help from the members of the somas that want the curse to be gone away with like shigure and reen and kurino but 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 the most part, like, I mean, but she's had to like do most of like the work so far. Yeah, because she's not actually part of the family. I mean, the Soma family can, the Somas can only do so much to break the curse because it's still hindering them. Um, Toru, who is not a member of the family at all, has way more leeway when it comes to being able to break it than they ever could. Yes, and luckily. Toru has two non-soma friends as well, and Hanajima and Iwatani. And Hanajima basically heard her cry after her conversation with Kurno and took her in. And Iwatani shows up, and yeah, she overheard Toru talking about Kurno. But instead of lashing out or breaking down crying, she is strong for Toru and says, ugh, I, re- I really am close with, with the biggest dummies, aren't I? Yeah. The, the ones that are very selfless and caring. And it's just a very wholesome moment. It's great. It's great that Toru, while she's had to do a lot of it alone, like she isn't alone either. And she has two really good friends that can back her up. It's always important to have close friends to back you up. And this episode reaffirmed that like, yeah, she does have all this backup, which is fantastic. Yeah. And it's important to note that the, that knowing about more about the curse and knowing about Akito's past and the way that she affects the stomas. And how impossible of a task it might seem to break the curse does not stop her from wanting to at all. When she goes back to um, Shigure's house, she's still, it only like reaffirms her desire to break it because of the way that Kyo, Yuki, and Shigure feel and act towards her. Yes, we even see Kyo pick up a Toru scarf that she lost. Yeah, she left behind because of her sadness. So it wasn't exactly something that she was thinking about in the moment. <laughs> yeah, and to see Kyo pick that up was, which is very wholesome, and to see the four of them reunited was 
was obviously great. And I even love like, oh, she's not here. I guess we got to do takeout again. Let me try cooking. Tries to cook. Starts freaking out, which is just amazing. Yeah, and then when we um, have Toru Vimer return, Shigure of course jokes about it, and then we can see Kyo's reaction, remembering how horrible Yuki's food was. Hey, at least he tried. E for effort. Yeah, I guess E for effort. Oh my god! I mean, it's better than an F, but worse than the D. <laughs> Yeah, true. And after the episode, we we get we get a little bit of a panel with some of the voice actors. We get Ian Sinclair as Kurino, Colleen Clinkenbeard as Akito, Eric Vale as Yuki, and Jerry Jewell as Kyo. And and, uh, and Brina Palencia as Reen. Yeah, well. and Brina Palencia as Reen. And we see basically like you know them getting asked like multiple questions, and it was really cool to hear how this show impacts the voice actors and it and it goes to show that yeah this is one of the best english dubs ever not the best mm-hmm. obviously full metal my hero academia exists which i believe those are the top three easily yeah but i think one of the things that really helps fruits baskets dub is the fact that almost everyone involved with it are huge fans of the original manga or the original anime so their connection to it brings out a lot more emotion within the way that the dub is is not just translated, but also how the deliveries are. And Caitlin Glass, especially who's the ADR director, is a huge fan of Fruits Basket. Yes, like, as I was saying, like, you get to see, like, how much the show means to them and how, like, they cried when they had some of their deliveries. And it goes to show just how impactful the show is and how much it means to them. And, and you can tell that because they're such huge fans, there's so much passion put into this. And it's why it's one of the best shows there is, because... Every everyone puts their heart and soul to it. It's not just another like voice role. It's actually something that means lots of them. And Caitlin Glass like absolutely kills it as the ADR director. And I'm excited and I'm super excited for the season. It's the final season, which means that oh, it's gonna be a tear director. Even Eric Vale was like, Yeah, grab some tissues because uh th- th- this is gonna be a ride. And that was really cool to hear him say that. Yeah, it's because they know they've pro- like they've pro- again a lot of these people have actually read the entirety of the manga, so they know exactly what's coming. <laughs> um, yes, but no, I'm I'm it's gonna be it, like I'm excited for this season, but it's gonna be really bittersweet. Uh, I've been watching Fruits Basket since it um, first started airing back in spring of 2019 on a whim. I was because I'd heard about Fruits Basket before that the original 2001 show um, and passing from other anime fans at conventions and stuff. And when I saw it was getting a reboot on our like full metal alchemist brotherhood, I was like, Ooh, I should probably check this out. And then as I saw most more of the voice cast and learned that Caitlin glass was going to ADR direct it. Um, and that it would be the first season would be simuldub. I remember watching the first few episodes and immediately getting hooked and it's going to be really bittersweet finally finishing the show that i've been watching for the past three years yes this is this is easily one of our favorite anime slash shows and it's gonna be really sad when it ends but if this season because here's the thing season one and season two are both 10 out of 10 if season three is also 10 out of 10 this may go down as like one of if not the best anime i've ever seen obviously we both consider Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood to be the best anime ever, but this is like this is like the one show that can possibly top it. And I'm yeah, interested it, if it does for me. Yeah, I 
In my opinion, I think there's two shows that can top it. I mean, I've I've spoken a bit um about my love of Mob Psycho 100, and again, like with Fruits Basket, the more that we get of that show, the more I love it, and it absolutely has both Fruits Basket, especially because of how well rounded its cast is, especially. I don't think it'll ever top Full Metal. I don't think anything will ever top Full Metal for me just because I love Full Metal. It's one of the first anime I ever watched. But Fruits Basket is really, really good. It's spectacular. Um, it's extremely well-written all around. And yeah, I, I don't think it's going to top Full Metal for me. But I mean, I don't I, it, like the season. I know that the show's going to stick the landing. There's no way it won't. Like every piece of this show has been perfect. There's not a single thing I've disliked, and I'm fully, I I'm I fully believe that TMS and the the English dub by Funimation and everyone involved with it are going to be able to pull off an amazing final season. Yeah, I I absolutely agree, and I'm very excited to see the first first full episode when it comes out in April. Yeah, uh, we'll have we have what like three we have three weeks without an episode of Fruits Basket. I think that it's the either the first or second week of April that we're getting the next episode. So very nice. And I mean, in the meantime, we'll have My Hero Academia, which starts next week. What? Right. I mean, along with Invincible, which we'll be t- covering the first three episodes with next week as well. Dear God, oh we're going to become the television discussion podcast. <laughs> That's all we are now. <laughs> we talk about animated shows and then the, the one live action superhero thing that we're watching. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then in May, we'll have an MCU show and a Star Wars show too. Yeah, but by then, I think that we'll have a lot of stuff already over by that point. Because I I feel like ReZero second season will be finished by then, and Horimiya as well. Yeah, and Horimiya because I think Horimiya is only twelve episodes, yes. thirteen something like that. Um, and we're I mean Higurashi will finish hopefully in June, assuming that we don't have another week without an episode like this week. It's sad. Yes, and 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 next week and next week on the podcast we'll be talking about Ruby Volume Eight because its last episode is next week. Yeah, dear God, we have so much to talk about next week. Yeah, next week we'll be covering um, Invincible, My Hero Academia, and among everything else that we're watching, and Ruby Volume Eight. So <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but I mean, just briefly about Volume Eight for Ruby. This has easily been the best volume of Ruby that we've gotten so far like easily <laughs> oh yeah so much has happened and it's it's almost it, basically every, everything's been perfect the only issues are stuff that other volumes messed up on yeah and, that are kind of reverberated within this one um yeah. i've like maybe some minor issues with some of the more like the more recent episodes of the volume but like for the most part they're just like nitpicks the Everything else has been pretty spectacular, which we'll cover next week. Hopefully, the show can stick its landing. We'll see. Um, yes, please. But, Sean, do you have anything coming out for the site this week? Well, this week, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna write the uh, retrospective of the second Ace Attorney game because I finished it, and dear God, that last case. Oh, my God. And... Obviously, I'm a more smart madness content, so look forward to that. And then, the, and then next week, I'll have a review of Ruby Volume 8 as well. Yeah. 
Um, for me, since Akudama Drive finished last week, I got a review out for that, which I talked about last week on the podcast. You can read that on the site right now. But I'm currently writing a top 10 anime list um, of 2020. Now that I think I've seen everything that I think is worth adding to the list, there's a couple shows that didn't make it, like Opera Raman and Keep Your Hands Up Isaac and just barely didn't make the list, while, um, despite the fact that I love both of those shows a lot. There's just There was a lot of good that came out last year, despite... Um, the pandemic. So I can't wait to talk about that in that article. Um, we are also currently work. I mean, like Ruby volume eight is ending next week. So I have an article about how much the show has improved since volume one, considering that, I mean, like obviously the animation has gone better, but the writing has improved a significant amount, even with Monty no longer being there to work on the show. So as well as comic reviews coming out this week. I don't remember off the top of my head what new releases are coming out this week, but I definitely will have at least one comic review. I'm hoping that we'll get a new issue of Strange Adventures soon because that's my personal favorite comic that's going out right now. So that's what I hope for, but that's what I got going on for me. But yeah, that'll do it for this week on the podcast. Thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your day.